Hi, folks. This is Brad Watson, pastor at Nexus Church. We are glad you have found our sermon podcast and that you're interested in our teachings. If you've ever considered financially supporting our work at Nexus Church, you can do that at nexuschurch.ca slash give. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Friends, good morning, and welcome to a sermon entitled, Is God Angry? And this is a re-record because while we've been back at the Conrad Center, and that's been fantastic, uh, we've not yet quite figured out how to record the sermons now that we're back in the building. So I'm doing a re-record this morning of my sermon, Is God Angry? Anger isn't always easy to pick up on. I found, in my experience anyway, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I came to a bit of a breaking point. I don't know if you've ever had this where there's just a certain room in your home that seems so, it's like a den of chaos and confusion. You just get to a point where you're like something has to be done immediately. And our, our, one of our bathrooms, it just felt like just chaos was reigning there. And so I decided to spend one Saturday just completely gutting, cleaning, organizing, just bringing it up into a position that would be functional for everyone in the family. So that like nine to five on this Saturday, clean, clean, organizing, took some stuff to, you know, Goodwill, some other stuff to the trash, just boom, you know getting everything in order. And at the end of the day, I have this beautiful bathroom ready to go. I, I call Kristen in. Kristen, you've got to see the work that I've done. I was so proud of myself. Bring her into the bathroom. She starts looking around, but then a little, you know, just a, a, a glance of the eye told me that maybe I wasn't going to receive the joy that I was expecting. I was half expecting her to sort of jump into my arms and, and heap on me uh, much praise, but there was a look to her eye that told me maybe that wasn't going to occur. And finally, she, she said, what happened to my hair straightener? hair straightener. I don't even know what those look like. What are, what are you talking about? She, she told me what it looked like, and then it, it hit me. I had been cleaning out all these appliances in the bathroom, and I had come across this contraption. It looked like a fire hazard. The cord was all bent and broken. It, looked, it just seemed to me, I didn't want to start a, a, a house fire, so it seemed to me that this needed to go. And so I had gotten rid of it, and uh, she wasn't happy about that. And then she said, uh, and what about my makeup? I said, I don't even know what makeup looks like. What, what are you talking about? She's like pencil looking things. I was like, oh yeah, I remember those. I thought to myself, uh, why are pencils in the bathroom? That makes no sense. You don't need a pencil in the bathroom. So I threw those out as well. And in that moment, I could tell there was, there was anger stirring from Kristen. I had inadvertently thrown out her hair straightener and much of her makeup pencil thingy majiggies. And so what I thought was going to be an occasion of great joy turned into something, well, less than that. And this is the thing. Anger, it isn't always easy to t detect, at least at first, especially when the other party is doing their best to keep a lid on things. But we're continuing our series here on the tensions we experience with God. And one of the questions I want to ask is whether God might be angry with us. 
Now, to start, the evidence of God's wrath is not hard to find in Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New. Here's a few examples. Nahum 1, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. What about the New Testament? Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Colossians 3, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. That seems clear enough. God's enemies, God's adversaries, the unrighteous, the wicked, those who disobey are under the threat of God's anger and wrath, which should be enough to make any of us nervous, no? So what do we do with this? And how do we relate and trust a God who seems like they might explode in a fit of rage on us? Well, one of the big challenges in talking about God is the problem of metaphor. You see, whenever we talk about God, this ultimate transcendent being who is the ground of being, we cannot help but use metaphor. It's the only way we can try to speak of this unfathomable God. And yet, troubles arise when we start to confuse metaphor with reality. For example, we know that God is not a man or a tower or a fortress or a rock or a husband or a father or a mother, a warrior, a farmer. And yet, within Scripture, all these metaphors are used to talk about God. We use language like this about God to make sense of certain human experiences with God. And I would submit that language about God's wrath falls into the same category, metaphor. It's a metaphor for a human experience. What do I mean by that? Well, I'd like to suggest that the wrath of God is a biblical metaphor to describe the very real consequences of going through life against the grain of love. I really like Brian's on, and he puts it this way. The wrath of God is divine consent to our self-destructive rebellion against God. The Bible is, of course, the story of redemptive history. It's not static. It's the story of humanity coming to know over time what our creator God is like. And for, for some of our earliest faith ancestors, knowledge of God begins in part with fear, right? We learn this from the Abraham and Isaac story, and there is certainly a place for that. The, the beginning of wisdom, the Proverbs tell us, is the fear of the Lord. And yet, by the time we reach the end of Scripture, our faith ancestors have uh, scaled the highest peak, you could say, about the knowledge of God, and they've discovered, it's been revealed to them, that God is not the fear, like it was to Isaac and Abraham, but love. 1 John 4, John says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What John has discovered and what has been revealed to him that God is love. God is the center and ground of all being. 
And that means that the entire created cosmos, if God is the ground of being, is created and built on the DNA of love. And when Jesus tells us, right, that our two greatest commandments in life are to love God and to love others, and by implication to love our enemies, Jesus isn't just issuing moral commandments here. He's actually showing us what God is like. Jesus is showing us the DNA, uh, the grain of the universe. Love is the grain, the axis that the world spins on. And if we go with that flow, it tends to human flourishing and well-being. But if we go against it and say, no, I will not live a life of love. I'll only live for myself. I don't care about God. I don't care about anyone beyond uh, my immediate circle. Uh, I will serve only my needs and desires. I will not be caring. I won't be generous. Well, then, what we're doing is we're moving against the grain of God, against the grain of the universe. And what happens is that if you live that way long enough, you will begin to suffer from self-inflicted punishment. But let's be clear. The wrath of God doesn't mean that God literally loses their temper. Wrath of God language is meant to convey a very real experience. Living against the flow of love in the world and it ending with you in your own personal hell. Now, this is actually portrayed quite brilliantly in Psalm chapter 7. Notice this. Psalmist says, my shield is God most high who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. Now, these verses are very heavy with metaphor. And it certainly sounds as though God unleashes retribution and judgment on those who are God's enemies. But again, think about the number of metaphors in these verses alone. We have God as a shield, God as a judge, God has a sword, God is sharpening that sword, God has a bow with arrows, God is bending it to release judgment. God is angry and is bringing out weapons of death to visit violent retribution on these folks, or so it would seem metaphorically. But when we keep reading, the psalmist continues this way. Whoever is pregnant with evil conceives trouble and gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. It's interesting, these next three verses of the psalm take us deeper into the human experience. It takes us deeper into what we talk about, what we mean by the experience of God's wrath. And what we find is not God unleashing wrath, but self-inflicted consequences. That's what the psalmist says. If you dig a pit of hurt and harm towards others, in the end, you're going to end up falling into that pit yourself. I learned this lesson uh, uh, the hard way a little while ago. I don't know why some ideas come into my head as a parent. They just do, and I enact on them, and I don't know if they're always great ideas. But one night before bed, uh, uh, Huxley was in uh, brushing his teeth before bed, and I got the brilliant idea that I would hide under his bed, wait till he turned out the lights, and then I would scare him. Now, that probably was ill-advised, probably shouldn't have done that, but I went ahead and did it, and it was all in good fun and games. He was a little scared, but then laughed. We had a joke, you know, all good. But what I unleashed from that 
what I did was dug a pit that I'm now continually falling into because my son Huxley, my other kids have gotten the idea that scaring people is funny. And the challenge with kids is they're so tiny, they can fit in the craziest small places. And so regularly these days, you know, I'll go to get uh, the dog food out of, the, out of the pantry drawer. Boom, there's one of my kids hiding, scares me. Ah, I laid a pit of normalizing, scaring each other in the house, and now I am reaping, you could say, what I have sown, and I'm getting it back seven times more. I can't fit into all the places they can. But that's the idea that's going on here. The wrath of God is an imagery of us living against the grain of love and it being like a boomerang. You throw it out there, and eventually it's going to recoil, the psalmist says, and come back at you. Essentially, the psalmist is really just foreshadowing what Jesus would eventually say. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. If you decide to live life violently, you will most likely end up dying violently. If you live by the sword, Jesus says, if you live against the flow of love in the world which forbids violence towards others, it will eventually recoil against you. You will fall into a pit of your own making. The wrath of God in Scripture is describing this experience. You're going to reap what you sow. You will suffer the self-inflicted punishment of living against love. And that experience will be very real and very painful. That experience is not a metaphor. It's very real. But let's try to be clear on this, God's disposition towards any of us is not anger or wrath. God's disposition towards each of us is one of unconditional love. And I mean, anyone who's a parent knows this, right? We can love our kids unconditionally, and yet we can still allow them to suffer consequences. You, you, can, you can say don't do something and they do it and, and, and it causes them hurt and harm. Kids can be loved unconditionally and still hurt, them, hurt themselves with all kinds of self-destructive behavior. But there is never a moment in your life when you're not loved by God because God's disposition is love. It's eternal. It's immutable. It's unending. It's unchanging. Having said that, it does not mean we are exempt from the consequences of living the way we do. We're not exempt from the consequences of our actions. In fact, I heard it this way again. It was Brian Zond, I think, who said it this way. We are punished more often by our sins than for our sins. And here's the deal. We can call this experience the wrath of God if we like. That might even be helpful for some. For others, though, like me, the language, the metaphor is no longer useful, useful or helpful. And that's okay because that's the nature of metaphor. When a metaphor stops being helpful, we can simply let it go, retire it. We don't have to hold on to it. Whatever the case may be, when we experience pain in our life from the hurt and harm we cause others, it's not God's literal punishment or wrath. It's the natural consequences of living a life against the grain of love. And you might think, okay, uh, fair enough, but there's still the question of justice. Sure, we might buy that God isn't angry at us, but what about some of the conditions we see in the world today? I mean, we may not want an angry God, but we sure do want a God of justice, right? Don't we? 
Let me take you on a little journey here, okay? When the temple in Jerusalem were destroyed in 587 by the Empire of Babylon, the Jews were carried off as forced exiles and slaves, right? They're forced to live away from their home. And in that time, a prophet arises among them. And in his visions and proclamations, he longed and dreamed of a king that would come directly from God. Not a king chosen by the people or by lineage, but a king who would be directly anointed by God. And during their exile, their suffering, Isaiah dreamed that this king would enact justice for the Hebrew people this way. It's written in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, this is what justice looked like in the prophetic tradition. Good news for the poor, broken hearts are healed, freedom for captives and prisoners, a year of jubilee, that's good news, all debts are forgiven, and, but don't forget this part, and vengeance. Justice for the prophets has many attractive features about it, including the pouring out of God's wrath and anger on the perpetrators of hurt and harm by way of vengeance. That is the vision that is still the vision. That has always been the vision from time immemorial. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of human nature. It's not hard to see this still being played out today. Your enemy attacks you, you attack back. But I want to show you something curious. Jesus arrives and starts preaching in the hometown synagogue and he's handed the scroll Isaiah 61 and Jesus says this the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has granted me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but something got left out. Jesus comes back home after doing a preaching tour, you could say. He comes back home. He goes to the, you know, the synagogue. Everybody knows him there. Grew up in the area. They invite him to read the scripture that he's given. It happens to be the scroll of Isaiah. He finds Isaiah 61, starts reading it as it is on the page, and you can feel the excitement in the room. Yes, bring it. This is the good news we want. Maybe this Jesus guy is the one Isaiah dreamed of. Keep reading, Jesus. Good news for the poor, liberty for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, a time of jubilee. Yes, keep going, Jesus. This is what we want. And right at the height of the moment, Jesus closes the book full stop without mentioning the vengeance part. It's kind of like, I try to think of it, what would it be like? Be like somebody singing, sweet Caroline, and then vroom, the sound system goes off. You, you don't get the bump, bump, bump part. Jesus leaves out the crescendo, the vengeance part. He edits out the part about enemies and oppressors and terrorists and apartheid states getting what they deserve, it's gone, left out. 
And you might be wondering, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Was that what Jesus was intending? I mean, Jesus regularly cites the first part of Scripture passage, intending his audience to call to mind the rest. This is what happens with Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, a, it's allusion to the whole psalm. So, so maybe what Jesus meant was for his hearers to assume the last part was part of the package as well. Granted, I suppose that is a possibility, but let's figure it out. Did Jesus intend to leave out the vengeance part or no? Well, I'll let you be the judge because this is how the story continues. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus leaves out the vengeance part of the story and then goes on to tell uh, two very subversive stories. And these stories, I think, are really about God's subversive love for enemies. Remember back in Elijah's day, Jesus says there was a famine. And all kind of widows were in, in need, in trouble. And, and who does God, the God of Israel, send his prophet to? Is it one of the Jewish widows? No, it's a Gentile woman. And as if to drive home the point, make it even more provocative, he tells a story from Elisha's time. There were a lot of lepers in Israel, lots of Jewish lepers in Israel in the days of Elijah, and God didn't heal any of them. Who did God heal through Elisha? He healed Naaman, the Syrian, the enemy of Israel. And, and Naaman was no ordinary citizen. He was the commander of their army. For some people today, let's get how radical this is. This would be like hearing that God had healed the commander of Hamas. For others, it would be like hearing that God healed the commander in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces. I mean, you can imagine how that would go over. That's what Jesus is saying to this audience, and that's what Jesus is still saying. It's as if Jesus is saying, listen, I know as humans you love that part about the day of vengeance, but I didn't read it. That isn't, my part of the, that isn't part of my plan. God's wrath and justice and judgment are not being rolled out in gunfire and bombs because we all need to be reminded that God cares about other people than just our tribe, our side. I think, well, did Jesus' first audience get the point Jesus was making? Oh, I think they got the point all right, and they hated it. They're now the ones filled with fury and wrath, and they want to kill Jesus. We have wrath in this story, all right, but is it the wrath of God? No. And here's the thing. No matter how righteous and just we think our cause is, we cannot be sucked into thinking that human wrath is God's wrath. We must not be seduced into thinking that just because we're mad, that God must be mad as well. And when Jesus denied these people vengeance for their enemies, Jesus became the enemy. And when Jesus tries to take away their obsession with an enemy, he becomes the object of their wrath. Instead of learning from Jesus to love their enemies, they wanted to kill him. 
You know, it's amazing how angry we can get when someone tries to take away our enemy and our desire for revenge. People can become very angry when we are told vengeance on our enemies isn't right. And until we are captivated and compelled enough by the radical mercy of God, we're going to always, forever as a species, cling to finding enemies and a desire for vengeance. But Jesus announces in his kingdom, in his government, that gets let go. And I love the imagery here. They get so angry, they try to kill him, but Jesus passes them by and makes his exit. There's something there. When we're holding on to anger and vengeance, it's as though Jesus passes right through us. It's as though Jesus has left the building. For some of us, we might have tension towards God because we're scared of God, scared God might be angry with us, scared of being the object of God's wrath. But God isn't angry with you. But know this, if you come to trust this God, Jesus in his path will begin to teach you how to hold your own righteous wrath. Come to know this God, not a, not a God of fear, but a God of unconditional love. And in coming to know this God, we will begin to learn and be trained on what it means to love our enemies. Love our enemies, Jesus, that is hard. We need help. On the Jesus path, we meet the author of the trail, the creator of the trail, who promises to walk with us and sustain us. Brian Zond, at the conclusion of his book, Sinners in the Hand of a Loving God, he writes this. Jesus didn't come to bring vengeance. He came to close the book on vengeance. Jesus announced the jubilee of good news, of pardon, amnesty, liberation, and restoration. Jesus doesn't bless revenge. He blesses mercy and teaches that the mercy we show our enemies is the mercy that will be shown to us. God does not allow us to hope that the book of divine vengeance will be closed for us, but left open and inflicted in full upon others. That's not how it works in God's economy of grace revealed by Jesus. Does this mean there's no divine judgment? Of course not. Certainly there is divine judgment, but it's a judgment based on God's love and commitment to restoration. The restorative judgment of God gives no warrant to a schoidenfreud yearning to God to see God inflict harm upon others. Jesus has closed the book on that kind of lust for vengeance. Amen.